Chapter Twenty One of Aunt Hannah and Martha and John by Pansy and Mrs. C. M. Livingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Twenty One, Embarrassing Questions. Why did the fellow look at me in that fashion? I wonder. I'm not aware that I have said or done anything to injure him. Such was Earl Mason's mental comment as, having seen Miss Chilton to her car, he walked on alone. Recalling the look on Alec Palmer's face as he passed them, Elsie, on her part, indulged in some mental comments. Now Alec will be offended. He looked unutterable things. I hope Mister Mason did not notice. Something is always occurring nowadays to disturb him. Why should he take offence, though, at so simple and commonplace an act? Have I really not the right to walk a few blocks with a gentleman and engage in conversation with him? Even to shake hands, if I will. A little frown was overspreading her face with the thought, the sort of jealous espionage which her intended husband seemed to consider necessary was wearing upon her naturally sweet nature. If he cannot trust me now, she murmured, but she left the sentence unfinished and went to a scarcely less disturbing thought. What an idea that my father should own the building where they have a saloon! I suppose it is leased, and he knows nothing about it. I wonder if leases cannot be annulled or revoked, or whatever is the term, whenever there is just cause for complaint. Father must be able to do something about it, of course. The idea of an officer in the church having such a reproach upon his name! How strange that Mister Mason did not go to him! I suppose he is not acquainted with my father. There is evidently some work for me to do at once in the cause. I am glad it is within my own family and is therefore such an easy thing to manage. Saying which, this young simpleton, who was so sure of easy work, stopped the car in front of her own door and was presently in the library, which was the family gathering room, to find her mother in as much of a flutter as that elegant lady often allowed herself over trifles. Elsie, where have you been? I have wanted you exceedingly. Nor am I the only one. Alec has been waiting for you the last hour. It seems to me that you are rather indifferent to his interests. In view of the relations between you, I would advise you to be careful. Young men will not endure everything, even when they are very much in earnest. It was an unwise way to speak to a girl of Elsie's stamp. Her stepmother knew it almost before the ready blood glowed in the girl's cheeks, and she made the cold answer that she still had an individual existence, as Alec must be aware, and was not conscious of having done anything that ought to disturb a reasonable person. Oh, he will endure it, I presume," Mrs. Chilton said, trying to laugh. "But you need not frown, because he is so exceedingly fond of your society. Love is not so cheap an article in these days that even a pretty girl can afford to toss it about as worthless. But I was not waiting for you in order to give an address on the courtesies due to fiancés. I am overwhelmed with engagements and perplexed to the degree that I do not know which way to turn. I thought you might suggest something to help me. Here are the cards for the Emerson dinner on Thursday, and an evening promised to Mrs. Potts without fail during the week. Friday is the only one left for that, and the circumstances are such that I really cannot refuse. And every other day and evening for the next ten is crowded. What am I to do? About what, Mamma? I do not see any unusual pressure in all that. The young girl's lip had curled ever so slightly, for some reason. Whose depth she did not herself fathom, all these engagements looked so utterly trivial to her now, 
so little worth getting into a pressure and an excitement over. The prayer meeting was on Thursday evening also, but her mother had not mentioned it as in the way of her engagements. "'I forget that you had not heard the latest perplexity,' said Mrs. Chilton. "'It seems that Dr. Benham is in town for a few days, and your father is resolved that we must entertain him. In fact, it is necessary. He is one of the greatest dignitaries of the church, you know. Your father met him last summer at the seaside, and wishes all due honor paid to him. Now, there is really no day on which to entertain him but Thursday. And do you see how we can possibly send regrets to Mrs. Emerson? One meets the very best at her dinners. Dr. Benham, Elsie said, with a lighting up of her face. Oh, I want to see him. Why, he is Mr. Remington's dear friend. They went abroad together before Mr. Remington was married. He must be their guest." "'It is not probable,' said Mrs. Chilton coldly. "'Your father wanted to invite him here, "'but he said he had a very pressing engagement with some friends "'who were almost like brother and sister. "'Your father thought he meant the Lorimers, probably. "'He was out riding in their carriage. "'He is very wealthy and has most distinguished relatives. "'It is not an ordinary case of a mere doctor of divinity.' "'Mama, he is at the Remingtons. "'You may depend.' They are very intimate. They exchange letters every week or two. Mrs. Remington calls him Dr. Joseph, and Mr. Remington speaks of him as Joe. Then we should have to entertain the Remingtons, Mrs. Chilton said, the perplexity deepening on her face. That complicates matters still more. The light kindled by Dr. Benham's name faded from Elsie's face, and she said coldly, Why, Mama, of course you would invite our pastor and his wife to meet a ministerial guest— even though he were not an acquaintance of theirs. "'I am sure that I would do no such thing,' the lady said, irritably. "'I am not bound, I suppose, to have Mr. Remington always at my house, just because he happens to be my pastor. I never carry religious observances into fanaticism. Besides, if the truth must be spoken, he has made himself so offensive to your father by his unwarrantable interference in family matters that I doubt if he will be willing to receive him socially very soon. But Mrs. Chilton was mistaken. Although her husband had been guilty, in a moment of ill temper, of calling his pastor a contemptible puppy, he by no means proposed to make himself conspicuous in the church by being openly rude to him. It was discovered, a little to Mr. Chilton's annoyance, that the great Dr. Benham was, as Elsie had surmised, the guest of the Remingtons, and, of course, they must be invited with him. For the matter of that, said Mr. Chilton, in his loftiest tone, of course we would invite them when we had guests which it is proper for them to meet. I trust I am above exhibiting personal likes or dislikes in these common matters of courtesy. Because Mr. Remington is not entirely to my taste, does not relieve me from the proprieties which should be observed between pastor and people. All this sounded exceeding well to Elsie, she told herself admiringly that father was so high-minded and unprejudiced, and then she sighed and blamed herself for having misrepresented her pastor, unwittingly it is true, but so evidently that her father actually thought he had been interfering in family affairs. It was well for her, and for Mr. Remington, that her father was the grand man he was. And Mrs. Chilton, who understood her husband thoroughly, listened and smiled, and knew that the lofty sentence meant that he did not choose at present to have any open rupture with the pastor of Kensett Square Church, 
and that he intended to maintain his present position as a large-minded, clear-brained, judicious leader of said church. Also, she knew that some opportunity must be found for inviting the Remingtons and their distinguished guest, with certain other distinguished people, to enjoy their hospitality. It was no sort of use to plead previous engagements. When Mr. Robert Chilton made up his mind, previous engagements had simply to move out of the way. Mrs. Chilton was a wise woman. She immediately moved the engagement which she liked the least, and made her preparations on her usual elegant scale for guests. Among those bidden to the feast were the Delanceys. Not that they were remarkable church people. Indeed, their attendance at church even was exceedingly irregular, depending upon the weather, the demands of society on the day before, and a dozen other trivialities. But Mr. Chilton, as I have before hinted, had extensive business relations, and needed to plan his hospitalities carefully. In fact, they often had to be made up along his ledger, and this time he decreed that the Delanceys were on no account to be omitted. "'I do not like her,' said Mrs. Chilton, in an annoyed tone. "'She is a coarse woman, does not know how to conduct herself in society. She speaks her mind on all occasions, whether it is agreeable to others present or not, and she has no taste in selecting proper subjects for conversation. I am always in distress when she is my guest, lest she effect an explosion of some sort.' "'Then, Mama, why do you invite her?' questioned Elsie, who was studying the forms of society life in these days in all directions, and finding them painfully hollow. "'Because your father insists upon it,' Mrs. Chilton said, coldly. "'There are business reasons, I believe. I consider it very unfortunate to be obliged always to bring the warehouse into social life.' But Elsie's brow had lightened. Her grandfather, she thought, would not have his business acquaintances slighted, even though they were not quite to Mama's mind. She herself did not like the Delanceys very well, and had never given them much attention, but she resolved to bestow extra courtesies upon them, and so help father. Verily, when I think of Elsie Chilton and her father, I can hardly help quoting the old, almost worn-out statement that where ignorance is bliss, twere folly to be wise. It is so beautiful a thing to see a daughter honor a father." In due time the feast was spread, and those who were bidden made ready, most of them with very satisfied hearts, for the Chiltons entertained elegantly. It is true that Mrs. Matty said, in the privacy of their own room, to John, I almost wish Dr. Joseph had not honored us until after the Chiltons went to Washington. I am beginning to have almost a terror of visiting there. Mrs. Chilton is so much like our lovely white cat at home, whose claws were hidden in the softest and whitest velvet, and were the sharpest of any cat I ever saw. "'What an idea!' laughed John, as he struggled with his collar-button. Then, from out of his masculine mind came this thought, which would doubtless have gratified the persons in question, could they have heard. "'I do not think you quite do justice to the Chiltons. Mrs. Chilton is worldly, it is true, but I have sometimes thought she was growing dissatisfied, which is the first step toward a change, you know. She often looks grave nowadays.' perplexed or disturbed in some way. I cannot but hope that she has at times a longing for something better than her life offers. As for Mr. Chilton, Aunt Hannah, without intending it, has prejudiced us both a little, I fear. He is immersed in business, and has very heavy responsibilities which weigh him down, and at times make him irritable. I often overlook sharp things that he says, 
because I think he is so absorbed that he does not realize how they sound. He is a good friend to us, I think, in his way. His tastes and ours are very different. And I think, too, that he means to be an earnest Christian, but the world, almost of necessity, has a tremendous hold upon him. Mrs. Maddy listened to all this in determined silence, shutting her lips firmly lest they should insist on a reply, bending low over her shoes with her button-hook so that John might not detect the little upward curve that there was to her lips. But after a moment's silence he came toward her, took the button-hook out of her hand, and himself finished the task it was doing, as he said with that tone of sweet gravity which never failed to impress her. Matty, dear, I am making that man a special subject of prayer. I long for his awakening almost more, I believe, than I do for that of an unconverted soul. It seems to me at times that he is in peril. I want to keep my heart open and sweet towards him as much as possible. And, darling, I want your help. Then did Mrs. Remington's face grow bright. All the curve went out of her lip. She looked up with a frank, glad smile and kissed her husband, and thanked God in her heart that John was just the high-toned, unworldly man he was, and humbly wished that she could see through some things not a bit plainer than he could himself. They went to the feast which Dr. Benham had spread for them, and while they were doing honor to it, that gentleman said, in his clear, genial tones, "'Well, Brother Chilton, what are you doing in your city to fight the giant who is stalking all over the land?' I suppose you meet him in an aggressive form here as elsewhere. It becomes us who are in earnest to keep careful watch of the Davids and see what stones are most successful in fighting him. Which giant? his hostess asked, in her smooth, gracious tones, as her husband hesitated a moment. You clergymen believe that their name is Legion in these days, do you not? That is true, Mrs. Chilton, but the Goliath who, to my mind, towers more than head and shoulders above all other evils, is the liquor traffic. You are especially interested in putting it down, of course. All Christians are. Is there anything new in your line of work? The question was still addressed to Mr. Chilton, and there was nothing about it to embarrass him. Of course, he was a temperance man. Did he not often pray that the tide of evil flowing through our land might be stemmed, that all good men might unite in wise and well-directed efforts to overthrow the power of the saloon? He was beginning his reply, couched in language as judiciously worded as his prayers were wont to be, when that unreasonable fanatic, John Remington, suddenly broke forth. Oh, I beg your pardon, Benham. Did I interrupt? Brother Chilton, I am reminded of something I have been intending to ask you for the last thirty-six hours, as soon as opportunity offered. Has the petition reached you yet for suppressing that infamous saloon near the foundry, of all the snares which Satan has spread in this city, that one, I believe, makes me the most indignant. Nothing could be more cunningly planned than its location. It is impossible for those poor, tempted men to go to the cashier's desk without passing the door of the trap, and the man who is running it is the worst character in the city, I am told. His license will soon expire, and he is making every effort to secure another, and we are making every possible effort to circumvent him. What decent men he can find to sign his petition, I am sure I do not know. But the excise board does not look closely into the decency of the signers, I presume. Earl Mason is working day and night to outwit the man. He is a David who would be after your own heart, Benham. 
A splendid fellow. Has he been to you yet, Brother Chiltern? No, sir. Elsie looked up with a flush on her face. How harsh her father's voice sounded. Who owns the building in which the saloon is kept? He's the man to go for first. This from Dr. Benham. Then Mr. Remington. I don't know. There seems to be some difficulty in discovering. It is owned by an association, some of them think, but Mason said not, and he is generally well posted. But he didn't state who the owner was. Oh, there is no hope from that quarter. Mason said he had been to the person, or persons, and been assured that their hands were tied. They had leased the building out of their control. Purposefully tied, Mason said, and he added that he knew it had been purposefully done, and could prove it if occasion demanded. Again that startled, this time almost frightened, look in Elsie's eyes. There was surely some mistake. The saloon could never be in her father's building. Where is the obnoxious saloon? Mrs. Chilton's voice again, clear, cultured, undisturbed. Evidently she was in utter ignorance of this being possibly a personal question. Why, it is in that large brick block on the corner of Foundry and Washington Streets, the worst possible place for a saloon in the entire city. But what enrages me is the thought of the man who manages it, the idea that any citizen would perjure himself by saying that the man was of good moral character. Even judged by the rules which obtain in the civil courts, he has an infamous character in almost every direction. Perhaps he will fail of his object, said Dr. Benham, and if he does, how much better off will you be? Somebody will succeed. The persons with spotless moral character, it seems, can be readily found to sell liquid fire to his fellow men. Perhaps you can get a very high-licensed, gilded saloon there, Brother Remington, and a first-class statesman to run it. Then the foundry men would be safe, of course. Oh, there is room for sarcasm over this way of fighting the enemy, I admit, Mr. Remington said, and we are only fighting in this way on the road to better methods. The end will come. Meantime, this saloon, pardon my return to the subject, but I am exceedingly anxious. There are gentlemen present who, if I mistake not, own property in that ward. If Mrs. Chilton will forgive me for bringing business into a social gathering, I would be glad to receive your promise to give a little attention to this matter just now. I know how pressed for time businessmen are, and how liable they are to overlook some things, but the enemy is alert and pressing us very closely just now. Mrs. Chilton's general interest in the subject had been dispelled within the moment after she had heard where the building was located. Her interest just now was centered in jelly. "'I beg your pardon, Mr. Remington. You had not been served to some of my choice jelly. What an oversight. I am sure you will be fond of it.' "'No, madam, thank you. It was not an oversight. I declined the jelly.' He did not state that it was because it blushed to its very heart with the flavoring of wine, but returned to, or, rather, continued on, the topic from which his hostess had skillfully tried to draw him. Mr. Delancey, am I not right in thinking that you own property in the Fifth Ward? I do, sir, and I am one of those infamous citizens who signed the petition for license, which seems to have aroused your special indignation. Allow me to remind you that we businessmen have as good opportunity to judge of character as have most of the clergymen, who do not come into contact with the persons in question, and judge only from generally exaggerated hearsay. If we must have a saloon, I know no reason why Hodge should not keep it, as well as any other person, and I call on my friend here, Mr. Palmer, to uphold me, 
You signed the same obnoxious paper, if I mistake not, Palmer? I believe I did, Alec Palmer said, affecting an exceedingly careless tone, his eyes avoiding the end of the table where Elsie sat. End of chapter 21